My grandfather's barber was Jim Holder, and they had gone to school together. And Papa knew that any time he went to the barber shop, that it was going to take a long time. Because Jim was not able to cut hair and talk at the same time. Because when he talked, he had to use both of his hands. He called and concerned that I needed to use both my hands, so he's wired me up with this one. We're having trouble with the pulpit line. So bear with this stuff. We'll have it adjusted to go to work. We come today in our journey through the Gospel according to Luke to chapter 9, verse 51. And Luke chapter 9, verse 51 begins an entirely new section in the Gospel narrative that extends all the way through chapter 19 of Luke. And it really is a wonderful section. We, we call it in many ways the, uh, the traveling section because this is the point at which the Lord Jesus determinately moves toward Jerusalem. And we have things here in Luke's gospel narrative that we wouldn't have. He has generally been following a pattern that others have laid down. Mark, for example, in these last several previous chapters, you can track Mark and Luke almost side by side. But now Luke diverges from uh, that uh, plan of narration and takes on one that is entirely unique to him. And so we begin with uh, verse 51, having said all of that. And there really are some wonderful things here. I mean, after all, you have uh, the story of the Good Samaritan, you have the prodigal son, you have wonderful material, as I say, that we wouldn't have were it not for Luke as the Spirit inspired him to write. So hear the word of God, that which has been inspired by God. Luke 9, beginning with verse 51. When the days drew near, for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered the village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume him? But he turned to and they went on to another road. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to them, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those of my own. Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. And we'll ask the Lord's blessing in this reading of his word as we give you praise for it. Amen. We all have found ourselves at one point or other determined to do something. We've made up our minds we're going to do it, and there's just no way that we're going to be from. It could be going to the candy jar. It could be getting that dessert that you don't really need at the end of the meal, but after all, the waiter has brought it out and shown samples of it, and you just can't say no. I remember my cousin's husband, as they would come down from Maryland to visit, Johnny, her husband, had very severe diabetes. 
but he loved my grandmother's blackberry coppers. And I remember every visit they would come down, Patsy, my cousin, would say to John, you can't have any cobbler. Okay, okay, okay. But then when the cobbler started being served, somehow, someway, he always wound up with it. From Harold, he didn't say cobbler. He said cobbler. This found in the sermon. What we can get is past the scripture, a determination on the part of the Lord Jesus that should refresh all of us and give us a sense of confidence and hope. We begin with the words that are very simply stated when the great day, the day is drew near for him to be taken up. Worded specifically in the original do not only include his ascension, but also by way of implication it includes his death and resurrection. And what we see here is that these days are appointed. These days were foreordained. This was what he was sent to do when he ultimately would endure the passion and be taken up. And it is at this point that Luke notes, as he would have been told or had information otherwise that indicated to him that the Lord Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. Elsewhere, we read that he set his face as flint. There was no deterring him from this mission. What we derive from this, very simply, is that his determination to redeem us took precedence over all other considerations, at least humanly speaking. Remember now, his ultimate determination was to do the will of his father. That's what he came to do. That's what delighted him. That was his meat, if you will, as he described it. He was determined to do the will of his father. But the will of his Father, the will of God Almighty, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, was to redeem those who were lost. And Jesus was absolutely determined to do this. Now, those who have redefined the church to be something of sort of a religious service organization might have issues at this point. Because after all, Jesus' determination to go to Jerusalem will end only one way. It's going to mean his life being taken from him. If he stayed out in the countryside, he could continue to heal people. He could continue to work miracles. So why would he cut that short? In a time in which we de-emphasize the cross, we de-emphasize the atoning death of the Lord Jesus, and, and we tend to try to distill Christianity out so that it looks like other religious systems and that we all basically are just getting together to try to figure out how to help each other. How is it that we deal with this? That Jesus turned aside, though he will continue to perform miracles and do work as he goes to Jerusalem, but ultimately he's turning aside from that task to do something that is more important. There would be no salvation apart from the cross. The Son of Man must suffer many things, he said in verse 22. He must. He was saying about himself, I have to do this. There's, there's no getting around it. And that meant being rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. That was what was appointed for him, and that's what he was determined to go through. And so we, we see that. We see as Matthew states it, that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for me. So you see, we don't do the world any service at all by de-emphasizing the cross and the atoning sacrifice of the Lord Jesus in order to make ourselves more palatable, in order to blend in perhaps more, 
so that we do find a fear of Jesus some charitable service organization, we take away the news that we have to report. That the Son of God died for sinners, that we might be rescued. He didn't come just so we could be fed, clothed. We participate in those activities, and we should. The gospel means that not only do we proclaim the good news of the Lord Jesus, but we demonstrate it by doing what Jesus would have done in our midst, by loving others. We always do it with a clear focus on the cross. Then we read them. So he sent messengers ahead of You know, get ready. He's going through the village, one of the villages of the Samaritans. You know, make preparations. I'm here. They didn't want anything to do with they rejected him outright because why? Well, you have this confrontation, this conflict that was going on between the Samaritans and the rest of the Jews. It goes far back in the Old Testament. We've seen it in our study of the book of, uh, of Nehemiah as Dave Nash has been leading. The Samaritans, as the Jews came back following their Babylonian captivity to rebuild the temple and the walls, rather than helping them, the ancestors of the Samaritans were there to detract from the work and to deter them from doing it. We further read in uh, Josephus that his antiquities of Jewish people is to be trusted that there was such animosity that when Jews would be traveling a long distance from the north, let's say, particularly from the Galilean area, through the area of the Samaritans to go to Jerusalem, they did everything they could to support their journey. They had their own place of worship at Mount Gerizim. They didn't believe that God ought to be worshipped in Jerusalem at the temple that had been erected there. And so there was this hostility toward them. And because Jesus had determined to go to Jerusalem, we'll have nothing to do with him. You see, opposition and hostility to the Savior is not anything new. And it's discouraging to read about it in our days. I alluded to it in Sunday school. We've got people elected to high political positions. They not only are skeptical toward the church, but many of those people view us as the enemy. Evangelical Christians are top on their list of people who are obstinate and simply won't fall in line with what they want to do to what are before us. Chapter 12 of John, verse 
verse 47. Jesus said of himself, I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The world already was under condemnation. It is now. Jesus didn't come for that purpose. He came to save us. And so he underscores this with the disciples. Even though he's weary and he needs a place to rest, and he's been turned away, no hospitality is being shown him. We're simply reminded that he came unto his own, and his own received him not. Yet he still was determined to go through. People like you and me, that's who you need to say. People who are hostile, unwelcoming. Second Peter chapter 3, verses 9 and 10 are so important for us. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that he should perish, but that all should reap repentance. Why did the Lord respond to all of this iniquity, all of this wickedness that we see around us? Why are we all not treated like Sodom and Gomorrah? Because the Lord is patient. He has a plan. Everyone that belongs to him will be saved. And the world will not come to an end until the last one is gathered into the number. Verse 10. But that day of the Lord will come like a thief. So make no mistake about it. God is gracious and he is patient. But judgment day is coming. It is coming. It will come when it is least expected. Like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved in the earth, and the works that are done on it will be exposed. So, judgment fire is coming, but it's not up to you and me to determine when that is, and we certainly don't call it down. What is our responsibility? To proclaim the good news, to demonstrate the love of Jesus to the world. And so they went on to another village. You see, Jesus is not diminished in the least because the Samaritans refused to receive him. They were. They used the blessing. Verse 57. And so they're going along the road. Someone says, I'll follow you wherever you go. This is unsolicited. Somebody just pops up and says, you know, he's Uber. You know how we all can get caught up in the moment? Oh, yeah, I'll go. I'll volunteer. And then 15 minutes later, when you're in that job and you volunteer for you, you think, what? Somebody in the Zoomer says, I'll go with you. I'll follow you wherever you go. Jesus points out critters, foxes, and birds that aren't normally domesticated by people. They just live out there in the wild. But even though they're out in the wild, not like our dog that has not made, probably lying or dead right now. Wondering when we're going to go home and take the to eat. Foxes and birds don't have that. Because out there in the wild, even they have a place to live. Foxes are not always stealing chickens out of the coop. The birds are not always flying around. They've got to go to nest and rest. They have a place to go. Jesus did not on this earth. Think of what he gave up in order to come. Think of what he laid aside in order to save us. Nowhere to lay his and then Jesus initiates the conversation. Follow me. How does that person respond? It'd be great to be counted by someone like the Lord Christ. To be counted by him and another, he would say, Follow me. You're going to be with us. I talk about these sorts of things too much, but for me, it illustrates the point. And you would just be talking. But uh, back in July, 
We let our good friends uh, Don and Debbie Reed know that we wanted to come and stand for the 4th of July celebration. We thought we would just go up there and, you know, these spectators. I got a message back from Don, Don and said, oh boy, you're going to go with us to the July 4th celebration. You're going to sit with us backstage as the groups come out, including Gene Watson. That probably doesn't mean a lot to most of you, but to somebody who grew up listening to country music, I was backstage for Gene Watson. He treated us like we were somebody. We got to ride over the bus through all the crowds and the traffic and get deposited there. And they picked us up and took us back when it was over. Now, who are we? I'll say for my Kathy somebody. I didn't have any business being there. They put me up in a microphone and said, We just heard you while ago. I didn't say like that. That we were with them, and we got to be treated like VIPs. So Jesus says, Follow me. Wow! Well, Lord, let me first go bury my father. Now, this seems like a legitimate excuse, doesn't it? Doesn't it? I mean, I traveled, drove over a thousand miles and flew and did what was necessary to honor my buddy Harris, who said he wanted me to do the service. Bearing my parents? There's a legitimate reason. But not really. It seems as though, and there are different interpretations of this, but it seems as if the issue is this. After all, if his father had died and was in need of burying, he wouldn't be here talking to Jesus. He would be at home where the wedding was taking place. So the implication is his father's not dead yet. In fact, it could be a long time before his father passes. I heard Dr. Kennedy say one time, his inimitable fashion, that an excuse is the skin of a reason sucked with a lie. He said, I like to be my drive. We don't have excuses. We don't have those reasons, so-called, that we want to offer. And yet, following Jesus is a command and it is an urgent one. And some of you, some of you perhaps, are still wrestling. You're still wondering about this Christianity. You, you've come from a background, perhaps a, a mainline or modern religious thinking sort of worldview where you want to look at everything as being equal, coexist, we're all really in the same family. We all have different views. We're all going to the same place. You come from a place like that and you're thinking these explicit claims of Christianity bother me and you're putting it off. And in the meantime, the Lord Jesus is saying, follow me. Leave it behind and follow me. But we really have it. That's the Greek expression. <laughs> I'd be staying at my friend's house and mom would come pick me up and wasn't ready to go. Just one more pass. You know, one more trip around the house. One more cookie out of Jane's kitchen. Give me that. My mother said, come. Lord Jesus says, follow me. I don't know what it is that you're throwing up as an excuse, but it's not worth it. With Jesus is where we need to be. Leave the dead to bury their own dead. That's for you to go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Things of this world take care of themselves. 
you need to follow Jesus. And so another one says that I'm super I'll follow you, Lord. But when you first say farewell to those at my home, that seems also like a legitimate excuse. But you wonder how long is it going to take them to say goodbye? It doesn't matter what they are, whatever excuse we offer. Following Jesus is a life of surrender and sacrifice. It's not a mere statement of intention. Anybody can stand up and say, I believe in Jesus. Oh, I'm going to follow Jesus. Though none go with me, still I will follow. Anybody can say it. But have you actually surrendered in your heart? Have you actually come to that place where you said, in humility, Lord, I'm yours. Take me as I am. I'll follow you. And not compartmentalize it and say, well, that means I'll go to church on Sunday. When the Lord called me, first called me in the gospel ministry when I was toward the end of my junior year in high school, at first, getting a sense that he wanted me to preach his word was terrifying to me because I've never given consideration to any gospel ministry. Never. Except, as I've said, Maybe when Mama dressed me up in one of those cute little suits, I went to church and somebody said, You look like a preacher. That wasn't a compliment to me. I wanted to look like John Wayne. I wanted to be I wanted to be a police officer. I wanted to be a pilot. I wanted to be a lot of things. Preacher never entered into the mix. And so, you know, I interpreted that to well, the Lord just wanted me to get more active in church. You know, the Bible study, Sunday evening service, they even joined the choir, and a lot of things. Never satisfied the call. It kept coming in waves. And finally reached the point I had no choice but to say, Lord, I give up. I surrender. I can give up. My dream of going in the military, coming back home and being in law enforcement, I can give up. Being able to stay at home or like riding horses and motorcycles out in the pasture. Working in the corn, cutting the bale of hay. On any given day, you can rest assured when I'm driving down the road, there's some part of me that wants to be on a tractor still. I love it. There's nothing like being out there in a field of hay on a warm day and the bicon mower is cutting and humming along, the wind's blowing over the top of that grass, and everything's just falling to the side. Now, when the equipment breaks down, that's another matter. That'll ruin your sanctification. <laughs> you might have grown in grace for six months, and you get out there and get a rock, and you've been to a bunch of times, and all of a sudden, there you are, backslide. Presbyterians don't believe in that, but we practice it wonderfully. <laughs> That's the hard Because there's something more wonderful right now. Because when we really set ourselves on knowing who Jesus is, what is there really? worth having that will keep us from him. So follow him. And so, since I've mentioned tractors, we've got this last part of the verse. So, no one who sets his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. There was a time at another church when I actually brought a four-strong plow with me to the pulpit. I don't have one down here, so I can't do it. But I used one. Now, Paul taught me how to use a, a single horse turning plow, a layoff plow, a cultivator plow. I can go through the middle of the corn with a good working horse. I know how to say G and haw and you can steer in the right direction. And do really well and come really fast when the horse is headed back the other way with the barn is ahead of you. 
I learned how to do that. And I know from experience, you cannot plow an animal like that and look back to try to keep looking at what's back there and what you've done and what that looks like. Your roads are going to be crooked. You're going to tear the corn down. You're going to read havoc in the field. You're not going to be useful at all. You've got to pay attention. I never will forget. I was, I was bush hogging an apple orchard on old John Fox's place. Apple trees had been planted by Uncle Will Oxford. He lived a long time before I did, but I knew the story. There I was in apple orchard. And I had three men on the tree. Two nickels, Bill Plot, his brother Fred Plot, said, You can't take that tractor in there and repair the smokestack off of it. Everybody who's ever gone in with an upright smokestack on a tractor has torn it off. I want you to know that in their estimation, I was the first person that ever pushed off that orchard that came out with a smokestack intact. Because they told me I couldn't, I was determined to do it, and that meant every time that I was going forward, I looked forward. I kept my eyes on the smokestack, and I dodged the tree limbs, and I got out of there without it at all. When you follow Jesus, it means forgetting those things that are behind. It means pressing on toward the mark that is our high calling in Christ Jesus. It means pursuing Him because He's worth having. It means pursuing Him because He's done for us what nobody else could do. It means following Him because He, having rescued us from this world of corruption and sin and guilt and wickedness, has accomplished something for us far more glorious than our minds can imagine. And so there I am with the graveside of my best friend from growing up and then lowering his earthly remains into the ground. And I'm thinking, absent from the body and present with the Lord. And in that moment of reality, Someone that I came to know 50 years ago. I realized Jesus is the only one who's going to get us out of those holes in the ground. No philosophy, no science, no popular thought, no entertainer, regardless of how much money they have, no one can do for us what the Lord Jesus has done. And if Jesus has promised to go and prepare a place for us, you think about this. Who's the builder? Who's the one making the promise? Who is it who's saying, I'm going to prepare the place? Now, if I'm going to fix the place for you, you're going to have questions. My carpentry skills are less than seven. But if Jesus is doing the prepare, rest assured that it's far more wonderful. I think you know what the song is, I can only imagine. I think the song ought to be titled, We Cannot Possibly Imagine. How wonderful. The Word is that Jesus has accomplished and fulfilled. I don't know what it is that's keeping you from. It's keeping you from stepping out of faith, answering that call. It's coming at you in ways. You know the need to surrender. You know the need to yield your life. You may be a believer. And yet there's an opportunity before you that the Lord has clearly presented. And it's time to stop offering excuses and say, Lord, here am I. If anyone come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross day and follow him. You know, there is one sense in which we can always have gotten pride. It's a motto that's been adopted by a large company, but, you know, we can use it. Just do it. Just do it.
When Jesus is calling, it's time to stop the baby. It's time to just do it. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you, O Lord, for your word. We thank you for the blessed Savior whose promises are far more wonderful than we can imagine because therefore we know that it sees everything that we can possibly conceive of in our minds. Oh Lord, grant us grace that we may follow our measure, yielding and surrendering and leaving behind anything that would impede us on the earth. The one who determined to go to Jerusalem to lay down his life for us is the one who's calling us. And so gracious Father, Give us ears to hear and hearts to receive. And give us the will, O oh God, to act, to exercise faith, and to step out and follow His footsteps. And now we pray, Lord, that you will bless us as we come to this table, remembering Him and His death, even until He comes. For it's in His name we pray. Amen. And so, we come to the table of our Lord Jesus. Now, I want to remind you, as I always do, or try to, at least, Christians do that, don't they? Always, maybe we don't, but I should have. Always remind you that this is the Lord's table. It's not a very Presbyterian table. It's not even a Presbyterian table, right? Pastor, USA, BCA, OBC, or split people. Doesn't matter. I'm a Presbyterian today. I've got a friend who calls me a split Presbyterian brother. Hey, if you're trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, you've made a public declaration of that faith before others. As a follower, you are welcome at this table. You don't have to have our name anywhere in your person. We're sharing together as we realize that the church of the Lord Jesus extends far beyond these property lines and this city state and nation. So come to the table of our Lord Jesus and remember that as he is. Come or take this in. Come acknowledging your guilt and transgressions. I'm trying to rationalize them as I often say. I'm trying to make of them something other than what they are. Acknowledge it before God. Confess. And come in that way. These elements are very common. Obviously, you're going to first share the bread. You can't think much more common than this. And the wonderful thing about it is, this can be observing. God's not calling you to make a long, expensive pilgrimage. He's not calling you to undertake some ritual that's, uh, that's going to exceed the ability of your resources. It's simply bread. And so God's people throughout the world and throughout generations have observed this supper with these simple elements. And yet these simple elements represent to us something so extraordinary. Even the body and the blood of our Lord Jesus represented in this suffering as we partake of them, we're demonstrating to the world that Christ is a part of us and we have accepted Him by faith. He is within us and we are within Him. And so in His acknowledgement of His presence, not physically in the elements, they remain as they are, but nevertheless, he is spiritually here, so that this supper is more than a mere memorial. Oh yes, we remember his death until he comes. But we also celebrate his presence by means of the Spirit right here among us. 
every bit as much as, it, as he was with the disciples on the night in which he was betrayed. Then physically there, now spiritually present, no less present. So we give thanks and rejoice. That it is much on that value which he was betrayed, he took credit. He gave thanks. <coughs> 